We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart. Somebody's praying. I-
the narrow sea. Thyself, my guide and stay can be. 
Yeah.
hope you're enjoying Songs of Praise. Here's some more inspirational music. I'm gaining 
every day Still praying as I onward bound Lord, plant my feet on higher ground Lord, lift me up and I shall stand By faith on heaven's table land And a higher plane than I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher ground My heart has no desire to stay Where doubts arise and fears dismay Though some may dwell where these abound But my prayer, my aim is higher ground Lord, lift me up and I shall stand By faith on heaven's table land In a higher plane that I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher To live above the world Though Satan's darts at me are hurled For faith has caught the joyful sound The song of saints on higher ground Lord, lift me up and I shall stand By faith on heaven's table That I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher ground
Songs of Praise continues with more inspirational music. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. 
journey through the land, singing as I go, pointing souls to Calvary, to the crimson flow. Many arrows pierce my soul from without within, but my Lord leads me on, through him I must win. Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice, cares all past home at last, ever to rejoice. When in service for my Lord, dark may be the night, but I'll cling more close to him, he will give me light. Satan's snares may vex the soul, turn my thoughts aside, but my Lord goes ahead, leads whate'er be tied. Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past home at last, ever to rejoice. Oh, sister, when in valleys low I look toward the mountain height, and behold my Savior there leading in the fight, with a tender hand outstretched towards the valley low, guiding me I can see as I onward go. Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice, cares all past home at last, ever to rejoice. When before me billows rise from the mighty deep, then my Lord directs my path, he doth safely keep. And he leads me gently on through this world below. He's a real friend to me, oh, I love him so. Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past home at last, ever to rejoice. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, the faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best I have befriend. Through thorny to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past.
confidence, let nothing shake. All now misty, I shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know. His voice to rule them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hasting on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. Disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. Sorrow for God, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All sin. Follow the light, show them the flame. 
listening to Songs of Praise. It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God. I am His, He is mine, Jesus knows my name. I can rest in His arms, He's always the same. When I fall, when I call, Jesus takes my hand, cleansing me.
Join us again next time on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio, to enjoy more uplifting music. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter, The Lord's Vineyard. There are many whose names are on the church books, but who are not under Christ's rule. They are not heeding his instruction or doing his work. Therefore, they are under the control of the enemy. They are doing no positive good. Therefore, they are doing incalculable harm. Because their influence is not a savour of life unto life, it is a savour of death unto death. The Lord says, Shall I not visit for these things? Jeremiah 5 verse 9 Because they failed of fulfilling God's purpose, the children of Israel were set aside, and God's call was extended to other peoples. If these two prove unfaithful, will they not in like manner be rejected? In the parable of the vineyard, it was the husbandmen whom Christ pronounced guilty. It was they who had refused to return to their Lord the fruit of his ground. In the Jewish nation, it was the priests and teachers who, by misleading the people, had robbed God of the service which he claimed. It was they who turned the nation away from Christ. The law of God, unmixed with human tradition, was presented by Christ as the great standard of obedience. This aroused the enmity of the rabbis. They had set human teaching above God's word and had turned the people away from his precepts. They would not give up their man-made commandments in order to obey the requirements of the word of God. They would not, for the truth's sake, sacrifice the pride of reason and the praise of men. When Christ came, presenting to the nation the claims of God, the priests and elders denied his right to interpose between them and the people. They would not accept his rebukes and warnings, and they set themselves to turn the people against him and to compass his destruction. For the rejection of Christ, with the results that followed, They were responsible. A nation's sin and a nation's ruin were due to the religious leaders. In our day are not the same influences at work. Of the husbandmen of the Lord's vineyard are not many following in the steps of the Jewish leaders? Are not religious teachers turning men away from the plain requirements of the Word of God? Instead of educating them in obedience to God's law, are they not educating them in transgression? 
from many of the pulpits of the churches, the people are taught that the law of God is not binding upon them. Human traditions, ordinances and customs are exalted. Pride and self-satisfaction because of the gifts of God are fostered or the claims of God are ignored. In setting aside the law of God, men know not what they are doing. God's law is the transcript of his character. It embodies the principles of his kingdom. He who refuses to accept these principles is placing himself outside the channel where God's blessings flow. The glorious possibilities set before Israel could be realized only through obedience to God's commandments. The same elevation of character, the same fullness of blessing, blessing on mind and soul and body, blessing on house and field, blessing for this life and for the life to come, is possible for us only through obedience. In the spiritual, as in the natural world, obedience to the laws of God is the condition of fruit-bearing. And when men teach the people to disregard God's commandments, they are preventing them from bearing fruit to His glory. They are guilty of withholding from the Lord the fruits of His vineyard. To us, God's messengers come at the bidding of the Master. They come demanding, as did Christ, obedience to the Word of God. They present His claim to the fruits of the vineyard, the fruits of love and humility and self-sacrificing service. Like the Jewish leaders, are not many of the husbandmen of the vineyard stirred to anger? When the claim of God's law is set before the people, do not these teachers use their influence in leading men to reject it? Such teachers God calls unfaithful servants. The words of God to ancient Israel have a solemn warning to the church and its leaders today. Of Israel the Lord said, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. Hosea 8 verse 12 And to the priests and teachers he declared, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Hosea 4 verse 6 Shall the warnings from God be passed by unheeded? Shall the opportunities for service be unimproved? Shall the world scorn the pride of reason, conformity to human customs and traditions, hold the professed followers of Christ from service to Him? Will they reject God's word as the Jewish leaders rejected Christ? The result of Israel's sin is before us. Will the church of today take warning? If some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Romans 11, verses 17 to 21. Without a wedding garment. This chapter is based on Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. The parable of the wedding garment opens before us a lesson of the highest consequence. By the marriage is represented the union of humanity with divinity. The wedding garment represents the character which all must possess who shall be accounted fit guests for the wedding. In this parable, as in that of the Great Supper, are illustrated the gospel invitation, 
its rejection by the Jewish people, and the call of mercy to the Gentiles. But on the part of those who reject the invitation, this parable brings to view a deeper insult and a more dreadful punishment. The call to the feast is a king's invitation. It proceeds from one who is vested with power to command. It confers high honour, yet the honour is unappreciated. The king's authority is despised. While the householder's invitation was regarded with indifference, the king's is met with insult and murder. They treated his servants with scorn, despitefully using them and slaying them. The householder, on seeing his invitation slighted, declared that none of the men who were bidden should taste of his supper. But for those who had done despite to the king, more than exclusion from his presence and his table is decreed. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. In both parables, the feast is provided with guests, but the second shows that there is a preparation to be made by all who attend the feast. Those who neglect this preparation are cast out. The king came in to see the guests, and saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The call to the feast had been given by Christ's disciples. Our Lord had sent out the twelve, and afterward the seventy, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, and calling upon men to repent and believe the gospel. But the call was not heeded. Those who were bidden to the feast did not come. The servants were sent out later to say, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. This was the message borne to the Jewish nation after the crucifixion of Christ. But the nation that claimed to be God's peculiar people rejected the gospel brought to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Many did this in the most scornful manner. Others were so exasperated by the offer of salvation, the offer of pardon for rejecting the Lord of glory, that they turned upon the bearers of the message. There was a great persecution, Acts 8 verse 1. Many both of men and women were thrust into prison, and some of the Lord's messengers, as Stephen and James, were put to death. Thus the Jewish people sealed their rejection of God's mercy. The result was foretold by Christ in the parable. The king sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. The judgment pronounced came upon the Jews in the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the nation. The third call to the feast represents the giving of the gospel to the Gentiles. The king said, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. The king's servants, who went out into the highways, gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. It was a mixed company. Some of them had no more real regard for the giver of the feast than had the ones who rejected the call. The class first bidden could not afford, they thought, to sacrifice any worldly advantage for the sake of attending the king's banquet. And of those who accepted the invitation, there were some who thought only of benefiting themselves. 
they came to share the provisions of the feast, but had no desire to honour the king. When the king came in to view the guests, the real character of all was revealed. For every guest at the feast there had been provided a wedding garment. This garment was a gift from the king. By wearing it, the guests showed their respect for the giver of the feast. But one man was clothed in his common citizen dress. He had refused to make the preparation required by the king. The garment provided for him at great cost he disdained to wear. Thus he insulted his lord. To the king's demand, How camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? He could answer nothing. He was self-condemned. Then the king said, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. By the king's examination of the guests at the feast is represented a work of judgment. The guests at the gospel feast are those who profess to serve God, those whose names are written in the book of life. But not all who profess to be Christians are true disciples. Before the final reward is given, it must be decided who are fitted to share the inheritance of the righteous. This decision must be made prior to the second coming of Christ in the clouds of heaven. For when he comes, his reward is with him to give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Before his coming, then, the character of every man's work will have been determined, and to every one of Christ's followers the reward will have been apportioned according to his deeds. It is while men are still dwelling upon the earth that the work of investigative judgment takes place in the courts of heaven. The lives of all his professed followers pass in review before God. All are examined according to the record of the books of heaven, and according to his deeds, the destiny of each is forever fixed. By the wedding garment in the parable is represented the pure, spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. To the church it is given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Revelation 19 verse 8. This fine linen, says the scripture, is the righteousness of the saints. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. It is the righteousness of Christ, his own unblemished character, that through faith is imparted to all who receive him as their personal saviour. Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White.
we hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. As the New World was discovered by Columbus in 1492, two men were born on this side of the Atlantic who would have a powerful impact on the shaping of Protestantism in Britain, Latimer and Cramner. Hugh Latimer was born in 1491, here in the small village of Thurcaston, just north of Leicester, a similar area that John Wycliffe would have worked just over a century before. His father was a farmer, and yet despite their humble occupation, he made sure that Latimer stayed in school and got an education, a vital decision that would take him far in life. He enrolled in Cambridge University at the age of 14, and in 1510 was elected a fellow here at Clare College. He was at the time an ardent papist and preached passionately against men such as Luther and Melanchthon for seven years. His belief in Catholic teachings was great, and his zeal in the divine mission of the papacy was unshakable. So what turned this pillar of papism into a pillar of Protestantism? An encounter with a man by the name of Thomas Bilney, who afterwards would visit him, even coming to the confessional booth to speak with him, and he eventually changed his views. The two men would later go and visit the sick and imprisoned in Cambridge together. Latimer went on to become the royal chaplain and the bishop here in Worcester, advocating for papal reform and denouncing the clergy who did not own a Bible or the parishioners who could not even recite the Lord's Prayer. His clarion call to reform ended him in prison in 1539, but he was spared the stake by the intervention of Thomas Cromwell. He remained in prison until the death of Henry VIII, when Edward VI released him from prison. He would never ever hold the high office of bishop again, but continued to preach regularly, where audiences enjoyed his preaching, which was known for its wit, its intelligence, and its biblical nature. When Edward VI died on July the 6th, 1553, England was thrown into turmoil. Lady Jane Grey ascended the throne, but only had it for nine days before Mary Tudor took the throne. Despite initial favor toward the reformers, her intentions of making England a Catholic nation soon became clear. Mary ordered the arrest of Latimer and word reached him that his captors were on their way, offering him an opportunity to escape, but he chose not to. As he passed Smithfield on his way to London, he commented, this place has long groaned for my life. Imprisoned here at the Tower of London, he met Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, and Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. In March of 1554, they were tried here in Oxford, where Latimer was asked whether the natural body of Christ was in the sacrament, to which he responded, our Savior's body is in heaven, whither he departed at the ascension. He went on to explain that the change at communion was not in the bread, but in the heart of the believer. He and Ridley were sentenced to death, 
and on the 16th of October, they were brought to the place of their execution outside Balliol College. Here, a cross marks the ground of the exact spot where they were burned to death. Before the flames, they shared an embrace, and Ridley said to Latimer, be of good cheer, brother. God will either assuage the fury of the flames or strengthen us to endure it. Latimer then responded, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light a candle in England, as I trust in God, shall never be put out. History says that Latimer died soon after, but Ridley died a slow and painful death. The cost of their death was just over one pound and five shillings, but the real result was the overthrow of Romanism here in England. The entire country was appalled by a religion that had to resort to such brutal methods in order to sustain itself. As we contemplate their life and their death, the real question for us though is, does the light that they lit at their death still burn in our lives and our witness today? To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com.